0: Great to see you here today. Uh, if you weren't here with us last week, we began a three-part message series entitled Pack Your Bags. And uh, over the next three weeks, what we're talking about is this question of how do we prepare for what's next? Uh, maybe you know what's coming next in your life in the next three months, six months, or a year. Maybe, like many of us, you have no idea. The question is, how can we prepare for whatever is inevitably coming down the pipeline for us? And last week, we asked the question of, is there something we can do today? That will help to prepare us for tomorrow. And that's a good question. Whether you know what's coming or not, is there something we can do today? And I think the answer is yes. And over these three weeks, we're talking about some of the things that you and I can do in this present moment to prepare for whatever is coming uh, down the road. I was thinking a lot this week about uh, the birth of our first child. My wife and I have four children. And our first child, Noah, was born. And uh, and I remember when, when my wife was pregnant, we did what every young couple does. The first time um, they're having a child, uh, we, we painted the nursery, we got all the furniture, we had the swings, the ADD swing, you know, all the batteries and flashing lights. We had all that stuff set up ahead of time. We were excited about, you know, welcoming this baby into the world. We read lots of books. It's always a good idea. We read the book, uh, What to Expect When You're Expecting. And I remember tracking our first child like every, you know, each day I'd be like, ooh, you know, he developed fingers today. And, you know, kind of all the way along, so we're tracking this. We went and did the course, you know, the, uh, the what do you call it, um, prenatal class. Yeah, yeah. So I learned how to be a great support for my wife. She learned what to expect, you know, during the delivery process. So we were prepared. Can I tell you, we were prepared. And I remember uh, the night my, my wife's water broke, and I was like, bag was packed. We were ready. I mean, the bag was packed. We knew what to expect. We kind of went to the hospital, and we told them what was going on, and they did whatever they were going to do, and then they finally moved us into a delivery room, and, and as expected, because I, I, I just can't, re- I remember being so confident. I just remember being so sure that we, you know, this was no problem. We got this. We are prepared for what's next, and, uh, and sure enough, um, the delivery went great. My wife, she just did an amazing job. Wherever you are, honey, great job. Uh, she did that. Uh, I did not do such a great job with the you know supportive husband thing. I didn't even get to do the you know the breathing bit. Nothing. I just I just kind of was there. Um, and, and so I remember the the baby was born. I was like, wow, that wasn't so bad um, <laughs> for me. <laughs> um, I was like, man, this is exactly as I expected. I, we were prepared. And the next day, we put this little baby in a car seat, which was a chore. And I remember carrying this thing going, wow, this is heavy. And I brought it down and tried to put the car seat in the back of my Acura Integra two-door sports coupe. It didn't fit right. And that is when it hit me. I am not prepared for a four-door family sedan (laughs) or minivan, which is what we drive now. All right? And And we drove home, and I remember thinking as we left the hospital, they're letting us leave with this baby? And we got home, and the baby was crying, and my wife was tired, and I'm just standing there going, we didn't read a book about what to do after you're expecting. Like, I knew exactly what to do up to the moment of the birth, and then it was like, oh my goodness, we are not prepared. Anybody else felt this? I mean, maybe some of you, you won't raise your hands. So you're like, oh no, it was a piece of cake for us. We knew what we were doing. Uh, but it was a big learning curve, and so we, we had to figure this out like many new parents do. Second child was a little easier, third was easier, yet the fourth kid, it was like, we went to Costco and and went shopping on the way home from the hospital, it was just like, this, we know how to do this, okay, we know how to do this, and after, and after all these years of of parenting our four kids with all their differences, we're kind of like, yeah, we got this, and then they turn into teenagers, and we're starting again, it's like, we don't have anything in the bag for that, we are not ready. And now uh, this year we're we're starting to go and look at universities for our son who's going into grade eleven. It's like, oh my goodness, (laughs) we got this parenting thing down, and now everything's changing. You know, here's the one thing that I know is constant about life: change, (laughs) change. (laughs) Like no matter what's coming, you know it's change. And with life, with progress, as you move through the seasons of your life, whatever they are, things will change. And the question is, are you prepared? Do you have the right things in your bag? And one of the other things I've noticed is that with a lot of change comes this opportunity to become extremely disoriented. Um, A number of months ago, I was at a basketball tournament with my daughter, Naomi, and my son, Noah, my two oldest. And uh, we were at this tournament, and we had an afternoon off, so I said, let's go do something fun. I said, let's go to Niagara Falls, and they have this place called Ripley's Museum. And uh, if you go into this museum in Niagara Falls, they have all kinds of weird and wonderful artifacts that were collected, and so we were in there looking at the, you know, the shrunken heads and the giant people. And I, thought, I said to my son, you think you're tall? Look at that guy. And, and so we're, we're checking out all this cool stuff. And, and towards the end of the museum, they have something called the Trippy Tunnel. All right, I have a picture of it. It doesn't do it justice, okay? So it's this tunnel, and you walk through the little bridge. And that thing that's swirling around is actually a mirrored tunnel that spins. And the lights are kind of going the other way. And, and it was funny, because we walked up this, and I'm like, I'd been there before. I said, okay, son, I'm going to go through this thing. I bet you can't walk through this thing without stumbling or touching the railing. He's like, oh, piece of cake, you know, whatever. And so I closed my eyes, marched through there like nothing, and then he steps into the tunnel. And I'm telling you, the moment you step into the trippy tunnel, everything around you is swirling. And something, I don't understand all the signs behind it, but as soon as your eyes and ears and whatever don't have a point of reference... It's like he started walking through, oh yeah, and he kind of started walking through, and you see him leaning, and he crashes into the railing. He's like, whoa, and he's like hanging onto the railing and climbing his way through. And uh, it was a trippy tunnel. And you know, I was thinking about this trippy tunnel, thinking that life is like this when everything is changing around you. When your family situation is changing, when your job situation is changing, when you're in, in transition of relationships, if you're moving, if you're uh, going off to college, like there's all these things that when you're in the midst of all this change, it's like everything around you is swirling and it's like being in the trippy tunnel. True? Like when you, when a young person goes off to college or university, it's an exciting time of life, but there maybe is no other season of life where more things are, are changing. Like you are no longer at home, for the first time maybe you've moved away from your parents, and you lose that stabilizing force. You move away from many of your friends, youth group, church, community, sports teams, all the people that helped ground you so you know this is who I am and where I belong. All of a sudden it's all gone, and you're in a new place, learning new things, meeting new people, and in a new location, and it can feel like trippy tunnel. You're like, whoa, what is going on? And I think that is why the the statistics are so high for young people. As they leave home and go off to college university, many of them lose their faith, lose their identity for quite a season. And they struggle because they weren't prepared for what was ahead. They didn't realize that all of this change would disorient them and knock them off balance. And this is true. um, This is true in so many areas of our life. Uh, When you're starting a relationship, it can feel like a trippy tunnel. Like a significant relationship. Have you ever had a friend that started dating somebody? And after a few weeks, you're just like, who are you? Because they're just like flying, floating around on clouds and you're doing things they would never do. And you're like, what is the matter with you? They have lost their point of reference. They, they are in a trippy tunnel. And you're like, come back to earth. Right? This also happens when a significant relationship ends. For those people that have gone through a divorce or, or had a long-term relationship that ended suddenly, it's like your whole world just feels like a trippy tunnel, and you're going like, "What's up? What's down? Who can I trust?" And and everything is in change, everything in flux. It is absolutely remarkable. Again, when you have kids, you start a family. It, also, the lack of sleep, but you it feels like you're in a trippy tunnel. You you you're just kind of going, "Where's up? Where's down? I can't find the refrigerator. Who moved it? It's you're exhausted." That's the way it is. This also happens when your kids leave, and you find yourself as an empty nester, changing jobs, significant loss of someone you care about. Like, these are massive changes. And here's the thing. Anytime something's changing around you, it it has the ability to disorient you. You can lose your footing very easily when things are changing. Isn't that true? Like, you're in a train, and it's moving at a constant speed, no problem. The second they start hitting the brakes on that thing, whoa. Right? You lose your footing. You lose your sense of balance. And I would argue that if you're currently in a moment of change and transition in your life, that you are susceptible to getting knocked off balance. There, there are some things that can go wrong for you if you are not secured to something. In fact, if there are many things, if you're like going off to college, starting a relationship, uh, you know, all these kinds of things, having a kid, all at the same time, um, that's one trippy tunnel that you are entering into and you need something to hold on to. See, look, when you need. Um, what do you need when you know you might lose your balance? When you're on that train and the brakes hit, what are you looking for? You're looking for a railing. You're looking for something to grab onto. Uh, when everything is moving and, and in change around you, you need something to focus on. And you need something to hold onto. Uh, when my son and I, we, we circled around and went through the trippy tunnel many times. all right, and, and I explained to him that if you focus on the door frame on the other side of the tunnel, And you ignore all the lights and swirling action. If you can just focus on a fixed point of reference, you can almost get your brain to understand that this room isn't moving. And you're kind of like making your way through without touching anything. The other thing is, if you grab onto the railings, now the fact that you're touching something, it's telling your brain, even though your brain is saying the room is spinning. When you're holding on to something, it it reminds your brain that the room actually isn't spinning. And so you're kind of like, if you can hold on to something, if you can focus on something that's not moving, you can make it through the trippy tunnel unscathed. And I think that's true in our lives. We need an anchor. You and I need an anchor. Something that we can hold on to in the midst of transition. When everything is changing around us, the culture changes, technology changes, relationships come and go. Uh, Life will take you places you didn't expect. And when all of it is changing around you and me, we need an anchor. We need something to hold on to in the midst of that transition. An anchor is a fixed point of reference. I actually have one right here. (laughs) All right? An anchor is a fixed point of reference. When you're in a boat and you toss this off the boat, it goes down and it lodges into the dirt or the sand or maybe on some rocks. And it will hold the boat in a fixed position. The anchor sits submerged, unmoved, While the boat may be tossed around, if the weather is good, it keeps the boat from drifting. And if the weather is bad, even though above the surface the waves are smashing against the boat, the rain and the winds are driving, the anchor just sits calmly on the bottom, unmoved. We need a fixed point of reference that we can hold on to in the midst of all the change that life will bring. Uh, We need a fixed point of reference that's unaffected by the economy. You and I, we need a fixed point of reference that is unaffected By the good times, the bad times. The friends who are there the friends who are not there. Whether the health is good or bad, we need a fixed point of reference. We need an anchor for our lives. We need an anchor for our souls. And honestly, here's the truth. Every single one of us chooses an anchor. Did you know that? Like whether you realize it or not, there is something in your life that you reach for when everything starts swirling around you. When your life becomes a trippy tunnel, you're going like you're grabbing onto something. What is that something? Maybe it's a person, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a friend, uh, maybe it is um, your children. <laughs> but there's something that when everything goes bad, you just grab on and you're like, "This is my security. This is my anchor." For others, uh, maybe it is um, for others, maybe it is uh, your resources. You wake up in the morning, you're like, everything will be fine because I have enough money in the bank. I have enough assets. I have enough RSPs to last me till I'm 200. I'm good. And so your sense of security, your anchor, right, your financial anchor is this money. It's the stuff you have. People choose. All of us will choose an anchor. Maybe it's fame or popularity. Go, I don't need money. I don't need all that stuff. But I have people who care about me. People admire me. That is my anchor. And as long as I have that. Or maybe it's religion. Now, you may be surprised by this, but if you travel around the world, what you'll discover is that around the world, there are many different religions and faiths, and in many of those countries, the people, um, their anchor for their life is their religion. And when I say religion, what I mean is their confidence is in their traditions, it's in their rituals, and it's in their performance for whatever God or deity, If, if if I offer sacrifices, if I live this way, then God, whoever that is, is pleased with me, and I'm good. I have my anchor. Today I want to read a text, and uh, and honestly, the text that we're going to read today is is kind of deep. And the reason why it's so hard to understand and why I've kind of labored to figure out how to explain this to you is because all of it is full of, of metaphors from the Old Testament that you may or may or may not understand. See, if I said to you that my phone didn't have a powerful enough processor... It needed more RAM and an operating system update. Most of you go, okay, I know what he means. He needs a new phone, right? Uh, his phone is deficient. You kind of understand that terminology. If I said that very same sentence 100 years ago, if I said that same sentence 30 years ago, people are like, you're what? What? Like no clue. And so today what we're going to find is we read through these five verses in the letter to the Hebrews. He is making reference to Old Testament images, Old Testament uh, laws, and and for if you don't know the Old Testament really well, then it's it's hard to understand. So I'm going to do my best to explain it as we go. Is that cool? You guys, you guys track with me. So you're gonna to have to put on your thinking caps, and we're gonna kind of dive into some Jewish history a little bit. See, the letter to the Hebrews was written by we don't know. Some people think it was Paul, but we do not know who the author of this letter is. But what we do know is the letter is written to Jewish converts. So these are people who were born in Judaism, the religion. That were born more than likely in Israel or thereabouts. And these are people that from the time that they were born, they were told, You are special because you're a descendant of Abraham. If you're a man, your body's marked with a sign that you're God's favored people because you've been circumcised. And the way to God and the way to please God is to keep his laws. And so they were taught the laws from the time they were very little. And the way to please God is to offer the sacrifices, animals and different things, money and all these things that they would do to please God. And this was all going to be done through a temple that was in Jerusalem. And the temple was the way and the means by which all of this religion was centered around. So from the time that these people were very young, they were taught. They're special because they're Jews. The, the way to God is through the temple. And then all of a sudden, this guy named Jesus shows up. And Jesus was a Jew. And Jesus comes along, and he says he says some really, really radical, radical, radical things, okay? Jesus comes along, and he says... Um, He's like, you know that temple? The place where God lives in Jerusalem that everybody loves? He says, tear it down. <laughs> and in three days, I'll rebuild it. And the people are freaking out, because he's talking about tearing down God's house. That's where God lives. They were so mad about that statement. In fact, that was one of the reasons why they killed Jesus. And then three days later, just as he promised, Jesus rose from the dead. What did he mean? He meant that the temple was actually just this temporary thing, but he was the place where God dwells. Jesus says, this is the temple, and he comes back. to life. So he's greater than the temple. They, they worshipped Abraham. I mean, they were like, Abraham is the father of our faith, and we're his descendants, and that's why we're special. Jesus says, before Abraham even was, I am. Jesus is like, I was before Abraham. I'm greater than Abraham And the people, can you imagine Jewish people who had believed this their entire life? They're going, whoa, there's this massive shift happens. And so the people that he's writing to had been raised in Judaism. They had believed something. Their anchor was their religion. And all of a sudden, they had now transferred their hope to this guy named Jesus. And the whole letter is written to say, don't go back to that. You you have a new anchor that is Jesus. Don't go back to religion. Don't let go of Christ. Don't go back. And the whole letter he's explaining why Jesus is better than the old law, better than the old way of sacrifice and the system that Jesus is the anchor that they need to have. So, here's where I want to pick it up. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16. And uh, in the preceding verses, he's just talked about how God made a covenant with Abraham. So he's taking them from Abraham to Jesus. And he says, God made a covenant with Abraham and made him a promise. Specifically, he promised Abraham that through his descendants, so eventually someone in his line, that through his descendants, the whole world will be blessed, which was a reference to Jesus. That one day, Abraham and all his kids, there would be someone born, Jesus, who would bring salvation to the entire world and bless everyone, including those of us in this room today. It's pretty cool. So here's what he says, verse 16 of chapter 6. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Confirmation. Here's what he's talking about. You make a promise or you make a statement and you really want to up the ante on it, what do you do? You swear. You're like, "This this is what I'm saying. I swear it's true. What have you done? You've just elevated the significance of your statement. True? And if you really want to amp it up even more, you swear by an authority that's greater than you. What would be an authority greater than me? Okay, I swear on my mother that it's true. And if that's not significant enough, then you go even higher. To a high, What authority would be higher than mom? I swear on my grandmother. <laughs> right? I swear on my grandmother's grave. Now we're getting serious. Or if you really wanted to go to the highest authority, people would say, I swear to God. And we don't often use that statement, but when someone says that, what they're essentially doing is saying, I'm calling God the infinite highest being in the universe to bear witness to what I'm saying. It's true. I promise. I swear. And he says, essentially, when people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Verse 17, so, he says, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. In other words, when God said he was going to bless the world through Abraham, he was going to send a Messiah, Jesus, he made a promise that this would happen, but he also made an oath to make sure that we knew he was serious and he would fulfill his promise. In fact, when he made the oath, okay, this is cool. We always kind of go higher, right? I swear on my mama. Well, who's God swear by? He's like looking up like, there's nobody above me. And literally in Genesis, when he, when he makes his promise to Abraham, he says, by myself I have sworn. <laughs> it's like, well, that's the highest thing I could find was me. So I, By me. I swear that what I'm saying to you is true. The world will be blessed through Abraham. And he makes a promise to us, that we'd be blessed through Abraham's descendant. He continues in verse 18, and this is where things get really confusing, so we'll we'll slow down and try to explain this. So that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath that he had made, in which it's impossible for God to lie, he kind of throws this in and says, oh, by the way, just so you know, because we're talking about what God promised, he doesn't lie, he can't lie. When God writes a check, you can always cash it. He always comes through. What he says will be accomplished, by the way, So he says, well, by these two things, the promise and the oath, he says, we who have, you see this little phrase, fled for refuge. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. It's super important. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So he's writing to Jews who've left their Judaism and are now following Jesus. Probably their families have rejected them. It it would be like if, if a Muslim came home and said, I'm now a Christian, wouldn't go well. Or if a Christian family, their, their son or daughter came home and said, I'm now a Muslim. Like, they, I've changed my paradigm. It doesn't go well. So these people, man, they, they, were, they were in the middle of it. They had changed their worldview to Jesus from Judaism. And, and he says, we have this hope. We have something out in front of us that we can hold on to. An anchor is what, where he's going. But here's what I want to show you. It says, we who have fled for refuge... Now, if you've read this kind of verse before, you go, oh, that's interesting. I have no idea what that means. Let me, let me share with you what this means. Um, he's referring to something from the Old Testament here. And what he's talking about is the cities of refuge. I actually have a map. Um, when, when Moses was heading into the promised land with the people, God gave him the law to govern the people. And one of the things he told Moses to do was to set up cities of refuge. Maybe you've never heard of this. This is really cool. So these are some of the cities of refuge in the land of Israel in Bible times. Kadesh, Golan, Shechem, Ramoth, Gilead, Bezer, Hebron. So these were cities that were run by priests and Levites. And they were cities where people could run to for safety. So let me give you an example. If you're out in the forest and you're cutting down a tree and the guy beside you makes you mad and you hit him and kill him, you know, axe him to death, the punishment for you would be death. I mean, the family of the person you killed would have every right to take your life, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, balance the scales. Make sense? Now, if you were out in the forest, and you were axing away your tree, and you went like this, and the axe head flew off, hit someone in the head, and they died, well, by law, the family, who just lost their dad, brother, whoever, they would have the right to take your life, to balance the scales. Even though it was an accident, they had the right to, to, to even the score. But God made a provision for a city of refuge, and notice they're spread out through the land so everyone would have access. God commanded that the roads leading to these cities were double wide, smooth, smooth, well marked with signs, and so if you if the axe flew off, axe head flew off and killed somebody, you dropped whatever you're doing and you ran for one of these cities. Maybe the family of the person that you accidentally killed is chasing you. When he says, "We who have fled for refuge," he's saying, "Look, our sins are chasing us down, and there is only one place that we can run to for safety. There is only one place, and it's this image of running to this city of refuge. And once you got there, you would explain your story to the elders." And if it checked out after the trial, then you could stay there and you were safe. But you couldn't return home because you had taken somebody's life. But here's the deal. Whenever the high priest for the nation of Israel died, his death set all of those people free. And they could go home from the cities of refuge and continue on their lives. This is a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us. And we'll talk about it more in a minute. So when he says, fled for refuge, this is exactly what he has in mind. His Jewish listeners are going, oh, like the cities of refuge we can run to. Jesus is that for us. Oh, so when we run to him, he's our hope. He's the one that saves us. He's the one, if we can just get to him, everything else will take care of itself. Our hope is in him and we're running to him I was going to say like a batter to hell. Can I say that from the stage? You know, like, I just like, I don't, I'm not even looking back. I'm running with my eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. He says that in later chapters. I'm running. He's running to Jesus. That's the image. And we hold fast to this hope that is set before us. And then, verse 19 is the one that most of you will recognize. Maybe you've seen it on a gift card, okay, or something. It's very popular. We have this hope. As a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. How many of you heard that verse before? (laughs) I think that was actually a theme for one of our ladies' retreats. Um, It's this this beautiful verse that says, we have this hope. We have an anchor in our lives. There's something that anchors us. But but what we never do is we never read the rest of the verse. Because there's actually a comma and it continues. Let me read the rest Then it's going to confuse you even more. And so I'll try to explain it. But he says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place. Like, what inner place? Behind the curtain. Like, what curtain? The temple in Jerusalem had three courts. The very smallest center court was called the Holy of Holies. It was the place where the presence of God dwelt, and there was a giant curtain, kind of like what we have behind here. was a giant fabric curtain from floor to ceiling, and no one went in that room except the high priest and the high priest went in once a year as a representative of all the people with a blood offering and brought it to God. And, and through that act, God would cover the sins of the whole nation for another year. So each year, the people were praying and waiting and hoping, and the priest would go in and say, God, please accept this offering on behalf of the people. And the people's sins were covered, and the nation was saved for one more year. This is the process. And so what he's saying is, what he's talking about when he says this curtain, He's talking about the inner place where God lives. And he's talking about how we have an anchor that is inside that place. The anchor for our souls is behind the curtain in the very presence of God. He continues to say this. Where Jesus has gone, Jesus is in the presence of God now in heaven. He has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You're like, what? If you read the four chapters surrounding this, you'll get context for this. Melchizedek is a guy from the Old Testament who was a priest and a king who lived forever. And what he's saying is that you don't have to hope anymore in a high priest that's going to go in with the, the blood of bulls or goats because we have a high priest that lives forever who has entered into the very presence of God carrying his own blood as a sacrifice and he stays there with God forever and our hope is in Jesus. And so when our hope is in Jesus, our hope is eternal. When our hope is in Jesus, it cannot be shaken or moved. When our hope is in Jesus, it doesn't expire. When our hope is in Jesus, nothing can shake it. And he says our anchor, the anchor of our souls and our lives is in Christ, and Christ is with God, and that is where we get our foundation for life. He's reminding them, guys, it's not about the temple anymore. It's not about what you do. It's not the works and the worship, and it's about being anchored and rooted in Christ, the great high priest and king. He is the anchor of which the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Look, as I said earlier, each and every single one of us will choose an anchor. We will. Whether we know it or not, there is something that when when trouble starts coming, when we enter into the the swirly world of magic and everything starts spinning around us, the tippy tunnel, we're going to reach for something to grab onto. What is that going to be? Will it be your wealth? Will it be your fitness, your health? Will it be your relationships, the people in your lives? Will it be your accomplishments or your religion? The real question is this, though. The real question is, do you have an anchor that's strong enough to hold on to you? There are all kinds of things in life that we can grab onto, but the question is, are they strong enough to hold us? And I think what you find is the answer is no. That's why so many people, when they experience hardship and loss, turn to Christ, because what they've discovered in those moments of hardship is that the thing that they were holding on to wasn't strong enough. And they go looking for something that is strong enough. And can I tell you something, Jesus is strong enough to hold on to you if you hold on to him. So I want to share with you just three quick things as I close. Where am I doing for time? I'm okay. I want to share with you three uh, things as I close. Three reasons why I believe that Jesus is the greatest anchor that you could ever have for your life. The first is simply this. He promises his presence. This is a beautiful thing. That when your hope is anchored in Jesus, when, when it's anchored in him, you can know that you are never alone. He said he would never leave us or forsake us. So no matter if people abandon you, if things go bad, if there's loss in your life, whether things are good or bad, we can know that he is always with us. That's an amazing promise. He's a sure anchor. Secondly, protection. When your hope is anchored in Jesus, you can trust that he will use this. See, that doesn't mean, your anchor in Jesus doesn't mean that everything in your life will go perfectly smooth. Last time I checked, the death rate is one out of one. 100%. All right? We'll all get sick. Things will happen to us, right? But, but what he promises is that whatever comes in our lives, whatever experiences we have, good or bad, he will not only lead us through it, but he will bring purpose out of it. And he will use our lives for his glory. That our lives, isn't it something that every one of us wants, some purpose? You don't want to just live and die and have done nothing. But he includes us in his plan and brings purpose to our lives. He is a sure anchor. Here's the third and final thing. Promise promise. When your hope is anchored to Jesus, you can be confident that this is not the end. As I said, the death rate is one out of one, but life doesn't end when we die. There is more. Jesus is not only a high priest, but he's a high priest like Melchizedek. He never dies. And one day, and what I was going to do, I wanted to take this, this, uh, this anchor and I wanted to place it behind the curtain, you know, the presence of God, and then tie a rope to it and then it would pull me in there. That would be really cool, right? (laughs) Because that's that's kind of what happens, right? So while we're in this life, we're hanging on to to this anchor, and this anchor is in the presence of God with Christ, and we're holding on for dear life, and we're kind of swinging around all over the place, but one day we'll be in God's presence with him if we're anchored to Christ. Jesus said, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not through a temple system, not through good works, not through your money, but only through placing your trust and faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. I wanted to share as I close, um, the band's just going to come up and lead us as a song as we close, but I wanted to share with you the lyrics from a song that we sang last Sunday. You guys will recognize it. If you can throw that up. This is a song from Cornerstone. No Cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love, all that. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace, Okay next line says this and maybe you've never understood this it'll make sense now in every high and stormy gale picture a ship being tossed by the waves with an anchor my anchor holds within the veil my anchor holds within the veil in the presence of god the father jesus now lives making intercession for us those of us who put our faith and trust in him and him alone will be saved he is our city of refuge to whom we run He is the high priest who offers the sacrifice for our sins that we could not make for ourselves. Any of this making sense. And so what I want to do is I want to have a moment of reflection for you. The band's going to sing a song. I want you to just stay in your seats and I want you to just um, look at the lyrics and listen to it and have a moment to just consider where's your hope? What anchor have you chosen for your life today? Will you join me as we pray? Thanks for listening to the Pathway Church Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, go to our website, pathwaylife.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. See you next week.